maybe, hmm, what do I do that could get you arrested? Okay. <laughs> now so, I don't feel bad that I thought, what's a de facto wife? And how can I get me one? Hey! <laughs> you Hi, and welcome to Halfway History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming <laughs> week. week. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but a long time ago. And by a long time ago, we mean last week. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. It's my fault. This is a bear with us. This is the first time we've ever done something scheduled like this. Like with a holiday? Yeah, like a big one. Like we've lapsed over some minor holidays and not yeah. cared, but And it's also partially my fault. My family lives in Maine, which is so we were gone for like several days and recording there was not an option, so <laughs> Yeah, and then I just got uh, derailed with my note-taking, and yeah. it doesn't matter. We're back. We're here. We're ready to go. We're we're hopefully going to get two episodes out this week, and then another one back on schedule for next week. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect, perfect. All right, um, do you have any updates? Hmm. I don't have any that I know of. <laughs> no, I don't think so. All right, cool. Mine is 1854. Mine is 1872. We were close. <laughs> I still beat you, though. Yep. Because um, it's always a race. So, for today's episode, we are going all the way back to 1851 to start. Over in Ballarat, Victoria, Australia. Australia? Yep. Where Thomas Hiscock has just found gold. This discovery sparked the Victorian gold rush that would lead to a period of extreme prosperity for the Australian colony and an influx of population growth and financial capital for Melbourne, um, which was then dubbed Marvelous Melbourne. Nice. <laughs> which I thought was funny. So in August of 1851, just weeks after the publication of the discovery, the Lieutenant Governor Latrobe c proclaimed in the Government Gazette, which was like a newspaper, um, the crown rights for all mining proceeds and a license fee of 30 shillings per month, which would start in September. And uh, needless to say, this did not make the aspiring gold miners very happy. Uh-oh. Nope. No one wants a fee to get to mine their gold. Um, taxation is theft. <laughs> no taxation without representation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> On August 26th, a rally of 40 to 50 miners opposing the fee was held at Hiscock's Gully, which is where the first vein of gold was found. And it was the first of many such protests in the colony. They opposed the government policies of oppression, they call it oppression, including the license fee, and they put forward four resolutions to this effect. See, I can be totally on board with a license fee being oppressive. But it was, yeah. But you should be licensed. Right, but... I'm not that libertarian. Get licenses. Oh, but it was a monthly fee. Yeah, that's like, not good. It, it's one thing to, like, pay it once and be done with it, like a like a yearly membership to, like, a professional organization kind of thing. But I f it's, it's not a podcast you're supporting. It's your livelihood. <laughs> like, why are you paying it monthly? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, so in December, the government announced that it intended to triple the license fee from one pound to three pounds a month, um, starting on January 1st of 1952. And this obviously incited protests, even more protests, all around the colony, including the Forest Creek Monster Meeting of December 1851. <laughs> it was on that. <laughs> that's why I included that information. So in Ballarat, diggers became so agitated that they began to gather arms, and the government hastily repealed its plan due to that reaction. So good job, guys. Well, if they got so many arms, what did they do with all the legs? Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> You're not even a dad. You need to stop it with dad jokes. <laughs> All right. So, uh, never, nevertheless, the oppressive license hikes continued, and they increased in frequency, which caused general dissent among the diggers. 
In addition, the Ballarat diggers were in strong opposition to the strict liquor licensing laws that were also imposed by the government. Because what else is there to do out there in the mines other than dig and drink? Hmm. Kind of like Maine. <laughs> anyway. All toast to that. <laughs> um, so changes to the Goldsfields Act of 1853 allowed license searches to occur at any time, which obviously further angered the diggers because everything's just going the opposite of what they want. So kind of like when you're pulled over and you have to show your license, the authorities could require you to show your gold mining license, but at any time and for any reason. Like, they didn't need a reason. They could just say, I need to see your digging license. Mm. And if you didn't have it, I don't actually know what happened, but you got in trouble. It was bad. I'm, I'm assuming you were, like, given a fine or something would be my guess. But anyway. Weird a colony of criminals is so strict on their laws. Not in the 1800s anymore. Just descendants of criminals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you think they would have learned. <laughs> Uh, so the increasing restrictions resulted in the creation of the Anti-Gold License Association, which frequently clashed with the authorities. In 1854, in Bendigo, miners responded to an increase in the frequency of twice-weekly license hunts with the threats of armed rebellion. When you start calling it a hunt rather than an inspection, <laughs> you know you fucked up. I'm not convinced that they called it that. I'm assuming it was more of um that was put on it. After the fact. Uh. <laughs> but anyway, so the threats of violence were flamed by the events of October 7th of 1854 when a Scottish gold miner named James Scobie was murdered. The account of an eyewitness relayed the events to the Supreme Court. The witness was a gold minder, minder, <laughs> a gold miner named Peter Martin, who was present at Scobie's death. And he stated that he and Scobie went to the Eureka Hotel, quote, to get something to drink but found the house was shut. So when Scobie went up to one of the front windows, a hand broke through the window and struck him. Oh. Scobie then tried to get into the hotel, but Martin managed to get him to, like, leave, and they went about 100 to 150 yards away in the direction of Scobie's tent. But then some men and a woman followed them away from the house, and the woman told the men that Scobie had broken the window, which, due to the, the uh, witness, said that a hand came through the window and hit him. Mm-hmm. So not... What the witness has happened. Martin was then knocked down, and one of the men struck Scobie with what Martin thought resembled a battle axe. Martin then fetched a doctor, but Scobie by that time had already died. Oh. Yes. So I did preface it with a murder. Yes. So you had to see it coming. Um, So an inquest was held on the same day, and the hotel keeper named James Bentley and his staff denied taking part in the death despite a pretty sound case against them. So the magistrate found that there was not enough evidence against Bentley, and as a result, the matter was adjourned. This obviously did not appease the angry diggers. Nope, no, nope, nope. I wonder why. Um, and they felt that justice hadn't been served, which it didn't. It wasn't, so fair. So on October 17th, between 1,000 and 10,000, it's a pretty big span, um, miners gathered at the hotel to protest the acquittal. The protests quickly devolved into a riot, and Bentley and his wife fled for their lives as the hotel was burnt down by the angry mob. Oh. Yep. The small contingent of soldiers present were definitely not enough to suppress the riot. So on October 23rd, Thomas Fletcher, Andrew McIntyre, and Henry Westerly were arrested for the arson at Bentley's hotel, and they were respectively sentenced to three, four, and six months imprisonment. I'm unsure why they were slightly different like that, but not my monkeys, not my circus. Yeah, I've seen that happen before. <laughs> I forget what topic I was doing. Oh, it was the the episode, The uh, Blood the... Priests of Murder, Inc. Oh, For yeah. some reason, all the priests who participated oh, in yeah. the blood dumping all got wildly different sentences. Yes. Yep. I'm assuming it has to do with, like, level of culpability or something, but whatever. Yeah. Anyway, the imprisonment of the arsonists provoked a mass meeting, which attracted about 4,000 miners. The meeting re- resolved to establish a digger's rights society to protect their rights, kind of like a labor union. November 1st, 1854, 10,000 miners met again at Bakery Hill to protest the more frequent license inspections, as well as the arrest of seven more miners in re- um, relation to the Eureka Hotel fire. And on November 11th, the diggers, they gathered the same place, and it was directly opposite the government-like encampment of, like, soldiers and stuff. Um, And at this meeting, the Ballarat Reform League was created. 
the meeting passed a resolution that it is the inalienable right of every citizen to have a voice in making the laws he is called on to obey, that taxation without representation is tyranny. Sound familiar? A little bit. <laughs> the meeting also resolved to secede from the United Kingdom as the situation didn't improve. <laughs> mm. Very familiar. <laughs> hmm. So throughout the following weeks, the League sought to negotiate with Commissioner Robert Reed and the Governor of Victoria, Sir Charles Hotham, both on the specific matters relating to the Bentley Hotel, Bentley the proprietor, and Scobie's death, and the men being tried for the burning of the Eureka Hotel. And then also on the broader issue of the abolition of the license, suffrage and democratic representation of the goldfields, and the disbanding of the Gold Commission fire-related issues, and then broader mining grievances. On November 16th, Governor Hotham appointed a royal commission on the goldfields' problems and grievances. Um, however, Commissioner Reed, rather than hear the miners' grievances, increased the police presence in the goldfields and summoned reinforcements from Melbourne, so the opposite of what he should have done. Mm. There is some theorizing that attribute this to his belief in his right to exert authority over the rabble. The rabble-rousers. Ra- well, just the rabble. Not even rousers, just rabble. Um, so there is some historical thinking that he just thought he was better or, like, his authority granted him the right to, like, trod on them, essentially. So then on November 28th, the reinforcements marching from Melbourne were attacked by a crowd of miners and a number were actually injured. There was a rumor of the death of a drummer boy and, um, there's even a memorial erected to him in Ballarat Cemetery that stood for many years. Although historical research has shown that the boy, um, which was supposedly a boy named John Egan, he continued military service until dying in 1860. Mm. So he did not die there. <laughs> well, he just kept marching on. Yep. pum pum. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so on the next day, the Reform League delegation relayed its failure to achieve any success in negotiations with the authorities, and the miners resolved to open resistance on the authorities and to burn the hated licenses. So Commissioner Reed responded by ordering police to conduct a license search on November 30th, and eight defaulters were arrested. Most of the military resources available had to be summoned to extricate the arresting officers from the angry mob that then assembled. (laughs) Um, Within the League, leadership changes shifted from those who were championing moral force, so like the moral high ground, and like pushing on moral obligation, but they switched from that to those who promoted physical force, so... The leadership of the miners was definitely straying towards violence. In the rising tide of anger and resentment amongst the miners, a more militant leader, Peter Lawler, was elected. In swift fashion, a military structure was assembled. Brigades were formed and captains were appointed. Licenses were burnt. And on December 1st, the miners held a meeting where the Australian flag of independence was solemnly consecrated and vows proffered for its defense. And the miners swore what was called the Eureka Oath, which is, we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. The Southern Cross? That's what it says. As in like in the sky? I don't. Isn't that what the Southern Cross is? Isn't isn't that uh, what is it? Cygnus the? No, it's like actually a cross. I think like religious cross. I'm looking it up because I have no idea. The Southern Cross is a constellation. Oh. Maybe the Northern Cross is uh, Cygnus. It's just a cross. Oh, okay. Yeah, they called it the Southern Cross. Don't know why, but it was. Yeah, the Northern Cross is Cygnus the Swan. Ah, okay. That makes sense. The Southern Cross is just crux. Ah, gotcha. Oh, that that is the Southern Cross. It is the constellation flag. Yeah, it is the constellation. But it's a cross. Oh, okay. Yeah. Neat. All right. I learned something new. I should have looked it up before, apparently. <laughs> I learned there was a flag for the constellation <laughs> that yep. I knew about. Yep, there you go. So, the uh, white and blue Eureka flag bearing nothing but the Southern Cross um, which we now know was a constellation. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a lot of stars. That's a lot of things to put on a flag. Yeah, was then, well, it's the, like, general outline. It was, like, six points. I was, I was making another oh. bad joke. A whole constellation won't fit on a flag. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Well, Aren't flag, you glad we're back? Uh, the flag was raised for the first recorded time. Um, it's believed to have been designed by a Canadian miner named H- Captain Henry Ross, and it was sewn by Anastasia Hayes. 
Interestingly, the Eureka flag deliberately excluded the British Union flag, which is a part of the official Australia flag. Hmm. So they dished the UK part. <laughs> so over the course of the next couple of days, the diggers erected a ramshackle stockade out of timber and overturned carts. It was never intended to be any sort of like military ba- barricade or fortress, um, and it was very haphazardly constructed. Um, and the intention was just really to keep like the men together in the same area. Yeah. So like it really wasn't meant to be like a defense of any sort. Mm. <laughs> hmm. You can see where this is going, right? A little bit. Okay. So reinforcements for the miners in the form of 200 Americans from the independent California Rangers arrived on December 2nd. Never Um, mind. I didn't see this coming. (laughs) Twist. Um, They were armed with revolvers, Mexican knives, and horses. (laughs) It specifically stated that they had horses. (laughs) What makes a knife Mexican? I have no idea. Unfortunately, their leader decided to take a majority of that force to intercept rumored British reinforcements coming from Melbourne. Commissioner Reed's spies observed this and relayed it to him. So that night, many of the miners went back to their own tents after the traditional Saturday night carousing, with the assumption that the Queen's military forces would not be sent to attack on the Sabbath. First mistake. A small contingent of miners remained at the stockade overnight, um, which the spies also told Reed about. So while the miners were constructing their stockade and carousing, the police contingent at Ballarat had been joined and surpassed in number by soldiers from the British Army. And that brings us to why I'm talking about these Australian miners today. At 3 a.m. on Sunday, December 3rd, a party of 276 soldiers and police under the command of Captain John W. Thomas approached the Eureka stockade and a battle ensued. There is no agreement as to which side fired first, but the battle was fierce, brief, and terribly one-sided. Can you guess which side? No, I have no idea. (laughs) The ramshackle army of miners was hopelessly outclassed by a military regiment and was routed in about 10 minutes. What? Yeah, go figure. During the height of the battle, Laller, who was the leader of the miners... Was there a height? There was only 10 minutes. Well... Let's call it, like, six and a half minutes in. Okay. Lowler was shot in his left arm. He took refuge under some timber and then was smuggled out of the stockade and hidden. And his arm actually ended up later being amputated. Mm -hmm. Stories tell how women ran forward and threw themselves over the injured to prevent further indiscriminate killing. The Commission of Inquiry would later say that it was a needless as well as a ruthless sacrifice of human life, indiscriminate of innocence or guilt, and after all resistance had disappeared. They had stopped fighting, and they were still being a- attacked at that point, which is bad. The, the British were scary until recently. Some could argue that they're still scary. Yeah. <laughs> Just in a different way. Um, so according to Lawler's report, which he gave later, he does he survived, so, like, someone made it. <clears throat> That's a positive yeah. for an amputation um, back then. Yeah, so according to him, um, 14 miners who were mostly Irish died inside the stockade, and an additional eight died later from injuries that they sustained. Um, And this supposedly included Henry Ross, who was the flag designer. Mm -hmm. So that's sad. Um, A further dozen were wounded, but later recovered. Wait, that's weird. Wasn't our flag originally done by a Betsy Ross? Supposedly, but I'm pretty sure that's been debunked. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, but But that was like the legend. She she sewed it. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's just funny that they're both Rosses. Yeah. And and we were were making parallels to the U.S. to see Britain. (laughs) Well, it was also sewed by a woman, but I guess at that point probably women did most of the sewing anyway. Uh, Yeah. yeah. So three months after the Eureka stockade, um, Lala wrote, As the inhuman brutalities practiced by the troops are so well known, it is unnecessary for me to repeat them. There were 34 digger casualties, of which 22 died. The unusual proportion of the killed to the wounded is owing to the butchery of the military and troopers after the surrender. During the battle, Trooper John King, who was um, a police constable, took down the Eureka flag. And by 8 a.m., Captain Charles Paisley, the second-in-command of the British forces, sickened by the carnage, saved a group of prisoners from being bayoneted, and threatened to shoot any police or soldiers who continued with the slaughter. Nice. So, someone finally manned up and went, this is wrong. Paisley's um, valuable assistance was acknowledged in um, dispatches printed and laid before the Victorian Legislative Council. I don't know if anything came from it, but he wasn't... He didn't get in trouble, I guess, is probably better, but, like, I think he probably got some, like, award or whatever for being a decent human being. Of the soldiers, six were killed. 
So 22 minors to six soldiers. Why are soldiers fighting children anyways? I just don't get it. Oh, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So martial law was imposed and all armed resistance collapsed. 114 diggers, um, some of whom were wounded, were marched off to the government camp about two kilometers away, um, and they were kept in an overcrowded lockup um, before they were moved to a more spacious barn on Monday morning, presumably to await some sort of trial. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, News of the battle spread quickly to Melbourne and other Goldfield regions, turning a perceived government military victory in repressing a minor insurrection into a public relations disaster. Good job, dummies. So thousands of people in Melbourne turned out to condemn the authorities in defiance of their mayor and some of the legislative councillors who are trying to rally support for the government. Clearly, they were pissed. Uh, Many people voiced their support for the diggers' requested reforms. So, like, it went beyond the miners at this point where, like, the general public was like, you guys did wrong. (laughs) Like, this is ridiculous and, like, we never would have known about it except for this thing happened. Yeah. And now we have opinions, so... The court of public opinion clearly is um, stronger than just the people who it affects. So the exact number of deaths and injuries and pers- and persons, wow, are difficult to determine as many miners fled to the surrounding bush, and it's likely it's likely many more died a lonely death or suffered the agony of their wounds, hidden from the authorities for fear of repercussions. Probable that the death toll is higher than the twenty-two. The official register of deaths in the Ballarat District Register shows 27 names associated with the stockade battle. One source notes in his diary that time has proved that near 60 have died of the diggers in all. Captain Thomas, who was the leader of the soldiers, estimated that 30 diggers died on the spot and many more died of their wounds after the fact. Even the Geelong Advertiser, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but good enough, um, on December 8th stated that the deaths were more numerous than originally supposed. So, like, the press was saying that more people died than the official report. So, when the the press isn't supporting the story given by the government, you know shit's gone bad. (laughs) There is an abundance of research from historian Claire Wright that details that at least one woman lost her life in the massacre. Her book, Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, details how Charles Evans's diary describes a funeral for a woman who was mercilessly butchered by a mounted trooper um, while pleading for the life of her husband during the Eureka. They call She calls it a massacre. Yep. Her name and the fate and identity of her husband remain unknown. So as one may assume, an event of this sort had a lasting impact on Australia as order was returned to the mines and Commissioner Reed ruled with an iron fist. Of the approximately 114 diggers who were detained after the stockade, 13 were brought to trial. However, the first trial resulting from this event wasn't that of a digger. Mm. Henry Seacamp of the Ballarat Times was arrested in his newspaper office on December 4th and charged with sedition for a series of articles that supported the Ballarat Reform League that he printed in his um, newspaper. And he, the articles condemned the government and police harassment of the diggers. He was convicted of seditious libel and sentenced to six months in jail. So while he was in jail, his de facto wife, Clara Seacamp, took over the business, and she became the first female editor of an Australian newspaper. What's a de facto wife? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so apparently Clara was married in Ireland. Her husband was imprisoned a couple of times, and by the time she moved to Australia with her sons, there is no further record of the husband. So he might have died, they might have separated, he could have been in jail. No Uh one really knows. But as far as researchers can tell, despite calling each other husband and wife, Clara and Henry never officially married, although she and her children took his last name. Okay. My assumption is that the husband was probably still alive back in England, hence why they never married, because then she wouldn't be a bigamist, but... It's all spec. I'm speculating wildly. Yes. (laughs) But yes, they, as far as history can tell, they were never actually married. So interestingly, Clara may have actually been the author of some of those libelous articles that got Henry imprisoned in the first place. She was educated enough and she was able to act as the editor in his absence. So it stands to reason that she probably had a hand in it beforehand. Mm -hmm. And since, like, they shared political opinions kind of thing, it, it stands to reason that Some of them potentially were written by her also. So, (laughs) oops. (laughs) Maybe, hmm, what do I do that could get you arrested? (laughs) Hey. (laughs) Now I don't feel bad that I thought, what's a de facto wife and how can I get me one? Hey! (laughs) (laughs) You jerk. You don't even have a regular wife yet, so. (laughs) So, going back to the diggers, 
I'm sure you're wondering about those 13 that went to trial. I wasn't. Well, okay then. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So seven of them were Irish, and the rest were um, one each from the U.S., the Netherlands, Jamaica, Scotland, Italy, and only one of them was from Australia. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah, no. The most of them were Irish. Most of the people who fought at the Eureka Stockade were Irish, Hmm. which is interesting. So the jury deliberated for about half an hour before returning the the, the verdict of not guilty. According to accounts, quote, a sudden burst of applause arose in the court, but it was um, instantly checked by court officers. The chief justice condemned this as an attempt to influence the jury, as it could be um, construed that a jury could be encouraged to deliver a verdict that would receive such applause if that were to happen. So, like, future juries might be inclined to return the popular verdict for public acclaim rather than, like, fairness. So the judge... Um, sentenced two men who were identified by the Crown solicitors having applauded to a week in prison for contempt. So two people who possibly had absolutely nothing to do with the rebellion at all went to jail while all the people who were actually involved in the rebellion didn't. Whoops. And I mean, arguably three people who didn't actually fight in the rebellion went to jail and none of the people who fought in the rebellion did. Right. (laughs) So the trials have on several occasions been called a farce, and Commissioner Reed himself was quietly removed from the camps and reassigned to an insignificant position in rural Victoria. So basically, he screwed up hard and got demoted. Yeah. <laughs> so Peter Laller, who was the leader of the Reform League, stood for election to the Victorian Legislative Council to represent Ballarat in the 1855 elections, and he was elected unopposed. He later became Speaker of the House in the Legislative Assembly of Victoria, And during a speech in the Legislative Council in 1856, he said, I would ask these gentlemen what they mean by the term democracy. Do they mean chartism or republicanism? If so, I never was, I am not now, nor do I ever intend to be a Democrat. But if a Democrat means opposition to a tyrannical press, a tyrannical people, or a tyrannical government, then I have been, I am still, and will ever remain a Democrat. Huh, weird. And that's the Battle of the Eureka Stockade. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, that was it. That's all she wrote. Well, it's all I wrote, so it's all, yeah. <laughs> that last quote was pretty good. Yeah, I know, right? That's why I ended on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially today with the start of the Judiciary Committee hearings. Oh, boy. And, like, it was it was interesting because there were a couple of, like, um, photos because, like, I was bouncing around different people's Wikipedia pages for more information on the people involved. Yeah. So, like, that's how I got all the stuff on Lawler. There was, a like, a portrait that was done of him when he was Speaker of the House. And, like, he's so, like, um, wait, good job, dummy. <laughs> he looks, like, very, like, um, not regal. Regal is not the right word, but, like, official and, like, important. And then you see that one of the arms is missing and you're like, oh, yeah, you're a rebel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Very cool. Okay. My last cool boat story was in episode 11, Eldritch Witches, and that did super well. It's part of our top five most listened to episodes at this point. Oh, hey. Yep. I'm going to test the waters, wink, wink. Oh, no. And see if our listeners just really like boats. (laughs) We're all on a boat. So this story starts in the Bear River of Nova Scotia in 1871. So quick question. Bear as in... Grr, or as bear in the naked. Okay, as bear in is in All right, yep. cool. <laughs> I just needed to know. <laughs> if you want to be naked. No, 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 I don't. <laughs> the Die Gratia, which every time I read it, I kept thinking Die Gurin. Oh, see, I would have gone with Degrassi, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't even know what Degrassi is. I was thinking of Gurin Logan. Yeah, I know you were. The Die Gratia was a brigantine merchant ship helmed by Captain David Reed Morehouse and sailed from Nova Scotia to Genoa, Italy, making a pit stop in Gibraltar. Nice. After about 10 years as a Canadian vessel, it ended up getting sold to Yall County Cork, Ireland. Uh, Yall is spelled Y-O-U-G-H-A-L. Oh. Yep, I had to look up the pronunciation. Well, at least someone did, because I never do. It's Ireland. You kind of have to. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) In Ireland, it would sail until 1907, where it would eventually wreck its moorings in Pembroke during a storm. 
A memorial painting of the ship can be found in Maritime Museum of the Atlantic in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Nice. Okay, so uh, the digratin, the di- digratin. I'm starting to combine the two. The the digratia didn't live that much of an exciting life. Our boat story's already over. Wait, no, that's that's really boring. Well, I guess all right. Uh, call to action. <laughs> no, our boat story is not over. Remember that pit stop in Gibraltar that it took? Uh huh. It was not planned. Oh, oops. Yep. It was not part of the voyage. It only stopped there after discovering a ghost ship. Spooky. She's not impressed by my ghost ship. No. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not impressed by your ghost voice. Ghost ship. I guess that's better. <laughs> the Digratio was just 400 miles east of the Azores Islands when it spotted a ship. Hey, look, your homeland. Yeah. Well, half of your homeland. Half of it. <laughs> The ship was stationary, and it looked like, from a distance, that there weren't any people on board. Captain Morehouse sent out two of his sailors, Oliver DeVoe and John Wright, on a small rowboat to check it out. On approach, they could see that the name of the ship was the Mary Celeste, and there were definitely no people on its deck. I'm 100% envisioning those two goobers from the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Yep. The, you know the ones, yeah, right? The, the one with the, the skinny eye one that the, loses yeah. his eye and the, yeah, the shorter the, one. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm totally envisioning them rowing out and being like, I'm actually envisioning the parasol scene where they're, oh, one of them just like a girl. <laughs> yep. Best part of the Pirates movies. <laughs> those two idiots. Yep. Yep. So they reported back for orders on how to proceed, and Captain Morehouse ended up recognizing the name of the ship. Oh. It belonged to a friend of his from Massachusetts. Yeet, yeet. No. Captain Benjamin Briggs. He recently visited Briggs and his family of a wife, young daughter, and young son. The wife and daughter were going to join him on the trip that they took now. Uh-huh. And the son would be left home to continue his school. Okay. Captain Morehouse ordered the crew to board the Mary Celeste and see what they could find out about his friend who's missing. Yeah. At the very least, as long as the ship wasn't badly damaged, they could bring it in for salvage on their way to Genoa. All right. Yep. Hence the pit stop. Yes. So this is the pit stop to Gibraltar. That's where they were going to bring it for salvage. Yeah. Aboard the ship, they found very little that could signify what ultimately became of the crew. No bodies were found Hmm. and very little was out of place. The boat sustained minor damage from a rainstorm or two, but nothing that would impair its ability to sail. Different accounts exist over what was found since the premise of a ghost ship was so well that was so well intact was hard for writers to not embellish on. Oh, I'm sure. Some accounts say that there was still half-eaten food out on the tables. Oh. Some claim that the cargo over 1,700 casks of wine was found completely empty. Ooh, someone had a good time. Yep. Other accounts mention some evidence of burning on the ship, but no worthwhile damage being done. And the number of side ships slash lifeboats that were present on the Mary Celeste also seems to be up for debate. Oh, okay. Yep. Interesting. So the side note, there were even some more extreme fabrications, like one just a few years later in, in 1884 in a piece called J. Habakkuk Jefferson's Statement. This account spun a tale of unrest, mutiny, and murder, and later was discovered that the author, who at one point was thought to be anonymous or the statement account guy with the Mm -hmm. J names that I definitely don't remember off the top of my head, (laughs) was Sir Agnes, nope, I combined like three names right there, (laughs) was Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle. Oh, hey, wait a second. (laughs) Who just three years later, in 1887, would write A Study in Scarlet, the first novel in the legacy that became the world's greatest detective fiction, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. So Arthur Conan Doyle started this insane story. You know what? That sounds about right. (laughs) Yep. So he he heard about the Mary Celeste and went, I'm going to embellish on that. Yep. Sounds par for the course. (laughs) Yep. And this was before he wrote Sherlock Holmes. Good job, bud. Yeah. Uh, I almost forgot... The other quote-unquote truth that we know about this point in the captain's quarters, there were still belongings of the captain, his wife, and his daughter. Okay. The captain's log, the sextant, and the navigational charts were missing. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yep. 
So everything seemed to be in place. Except for those. But those things were gone. And hmm. under the captain's bed was his saber, which was noted to be stained in abnormal color. So, like, it had been used recently, or...? It was at one point, uh, when they stopped in Gibraltar, they ended up talking, because they eventually salv- tried to salvage the ship, mm-hmm. and one of the maritime judges from Gibraltar had someone who was trying to argue that it was a mutiny, and uh-huh. that the stains on the saber were blood stains, but mm-hmm. they were proven not to be blood stains. Okay, so just weird looking stains, but not yeah, it blood stains. It could have okay. just been All like right. con like a Maybe he used it to crack open a coconut. Sure. <laughs> or a pineapple. If I mean if they were close to the Azores, maybe they found could've, a pineapple. Could have been a pineapple. Didn't know those grew from the ground. You had a lot of fun on that trip. I did have a lot yeah. of fun on that trip. <laughs> I learned a lot. So there was a secondary logbook, which is our only solid clue as to what happened to the Mary Celeste. Its last known stop was logged in Santa Maria Azores, and mm, okay. there was five days of logs that, that followed that before the logs stopped. The increased frequency of logs after the stop in Santa Maria led, some, led to some speculation that whoever in the crew was transcribing these logs had a feeling that something was wrong. Hmm. At least that's what people again, kind of grabbed hold of and embellished on, is that we had this weird five-day period of logs that were more frequent than anything else on the journey. Yeah. Hmm. Suspicious. Yep. Any change in, like, normal activity is always suspect when things go weird. So let's get down to some of the theories as to what happened. Ooh, conspiracy corner. Not yet, but later. Ah, true. So the first theory is that there was a mutiny. That the crew was fed up with some working conditions, killed the captain and his family, then abandoned the ship and headed back to the Azores. Okay. Where they... Not a bad place to land. (laughs) Nope. But this also... Any any of these theories that have to do with killing of any kind and someone surviving are pretty hard to stomach because that means that any of these people absolutely didn't say anything about who they were after they got back to an island ever. And there was no, like, logging of them. True. Yep. Well, I mean, at that time period, it probably, especially in, like, somewhere like the Azores, that's, like, well, in the, a lot of in the land. Late, in the like, late 1800s, we already had the first U.S. embassy on the Azores. Right, but, like, I mean, even now, like, there's plenty of, like, open space where people could hide. Like, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. The, lar- Maria, so. the, the largest island, which is what we went yes. to, San Miguel. We went around the entire thing in under a day. True. All right. Yeah, I guess. And every island is smaller than that. True. All right. Fair enough. So like, I'm just, I'm enjoying the thought that you could be descended from a mutineer. That's uh, what I'm going with. I see with. what you're going with. That's what I'm going with. You are descended from a mutineer. Maybe. Yep. Probably not. <laughs> Another- I'm going with, it's, it's my truth. Okay. (laughs) Another theory was that the captain's wife and daughter, possibly being completely new to sailing, got sick after this leg of the voyage, and inexperienced people on the sea tend to get hallucinations alongside seasickness. Oh. Yep. I guess if you're on sea long enough, seasick, and that... Yeah. I I read that that was something that could happen. Hmm. Interesting. I, I actually didn't know that. Yeah. So that could have been a reason to put them down, because they were sick taking up resources and hallucinating and probably the captain didn't take you know nicely to that thought so something happened and eventually (laughs) all of them were dumped yeah so another one was maybe that since nine barrels of wine were found empty Hmm. so that was one of the embellishments is that someone said that all 1700 barrels were found empty um as far as we can tell from Records of it stopping in Gibraltar that only nine barrels were empty. Okay. So the crew got a little tipsy, and maybe that's why they revolted. However, something presumed about those specific casts that were found empty were that they were made from a more porous wood than all of the others. I forget what type of wood, uh, but it, it specified at one point yeah. that those nine barrels were a different wood than all of the other barrels. Uh, okay. So... If it was a more porous type of wood, there's a chance that the alcohol vapors could have evaporated through it, and the sailors became worried that carrying essentially a ship filled to the brim with evaporating explosives, that there could be, that could be a good reason to abandon the ship. Possibly. Yep. I could see, I could see that. I mean, yeah. Lewis and his freaking grill fire. What? 
Remember Lewis and his degrees oh on my God. fire? Yeah. Literally the whole thing was just engulfed in flame. Put some water on it. Everyone in unison, no! <laughs> yeah, Lewis, I'm talking about you. He's been binging recently, so he'll definitely I'm get to this quick. Calling him out. <laughs> Listen, everyone was pretty drunk. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Including you. Yeah. Hey, at least I didn't suggest to throw some water on the grill fire. Uh-huh. So remember how I mentioned earlier that there may be some less reputable sources that said there was a fire on board the Mary Celeste? Mm-hmm. One such person I found in the comments of literally anything having to do with Mary Celeste that accepted comments Uh-oh. claimed that everyone that I was reading these articles from was plagiarizing him. Oh, boy. So, remember I also mentioned Conspiracy Corner's coming back? Conspiracy Corner! Yep. So, in an effort to not have a comment on our stuff, this guy's website is defwhale.com. His name is Captain David Williams. And as he says in every single post, quote, he is a sea captain with 50 years of ocean-going experience, and I do not believe in scientists. Wait, what? Yep. That is a quote. <laughs> <clears throat> Conspiracy corner. Yeah, all right. So tread lightly if you visit that website. I don't actually recommend going to it. The did you? <laughs> yeah, because oh, okay. I wanted I to see curious. what his account was. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, and the guy is a conspiracy theorist and a half. He's <laughs> he's also heavily anti-vax, and I feel like you could have gleaned that from anyone that would have said I don't believe in scientists. Yeah, I was I was getting that feeling. Yep. Anyway, since he's apparently the leading source in all these articles and even a documentary that was made about the Mary Celeste. Oh, boy. Uh, this is kind of a paraphrased version of his take. Uh, what he believed happened was that they were traveling on the Mary Celeste and that there is no chance that there was a mutiny because the Captain Br Captain Benjamin Briggs had like a, f a fairly good reputation. OK. Um, he had his wife and daughter on board, so they wouldn't have taken anyone who would have probably succumbed to seasickness or hallucinations or mutiny. Okay. Because he wouldn't have hired a crew that was anything less than good for right. his yeah. wife and child who have never been on the scene right. before. And, like, I mean, all you really have to do is lock them in, like, the captain's quarters for the duration of the trip. Yeah. Like, there's no need to, like, put them down. Yeah. Like... There were there were a lot of different theories oh, thinking that kind of thing. You just punched I me. I know. <laughs> it hurt though. You have a hard hand. <laughs> I was gesticulating. Uh-huh. And so anyways, he was going along with the the theory about there being some char marks and that the barrels had alcohol evaporating out of them. Mm -hmm. So what he thinks happened was that the barrels were evaporating. Maybe the crew noticed, but they didn't really do anything because there's no real reason to be like, oh, my God, there's going to be an explosion. Mm -hmm. So they just knew that that was happening. And then there was some sort of kitchen fire. Like they hit some they hit some turbulent waters and it caused a spark from whatever they were cooking okay. to ignite some of the barrels, which wouldn't have caused a crazy amount of fire, but just enough to spook everyone who already knew that there was alcohol evaporation going on. Fair enough. And knowing that they have 1,700 barrels of whiskey, <laughs> I mean, of, uh, wine. of wine with them. So they probably, according to him, took one of the questionable amounts of lifeboats that were right. attached to the Mary Celeste and tied it off to the Mary Celeste and got everybody evacuated into the lifeboat. Okay. So in case the Mary Celeste went down, mm -hmm. they would be in the lifeboat, and if it didn't go down, they would be attached to the lifeboat and be able to get back into the right. ship. Right. Okay. But because the waters were already determined to be turbulent, the someone in their haste probably forgot to completely secure the lifeboat. Whoopsies. And the lifeboat detached thinking that they were going to be pulled along by the Mary Celeste. Uh -huh. They probably only had a, a set of oars. Oh, So yeah. they were now trying to catch up with a ship that had its mat. Like, they, they said yeah. when they found the Mary Celeste, like, most of the rigging was, like, at was like half-cocked. So uh -huh. it was half up, half down, but kind of neatly there. <laughs> the only damage to the ship was, like, some light rains and stuff. Yeah. So likely they were just kind <clears throat> of smoothly. Cruising along a bit. <laughs> yeah, they were likely just kind of cruising. And then they got into the little lifeboat, and the 
the the rope broke and the Mary Celeste just kind of kept taking the wind yeah. wherever it went. And they couldn't catch up. Also, like not to mention, I don't know how many people were like were on this ship, but yep. I can't imagine it was too many for one lifeboat. Or mm. well, maybe a couple lifeboats, but still. Like well, their intention wasn't to be on there for a long period of time. Well, at so. most they had two lifeboats from what I saw. Oh, okay. Most likely there was only ever one. And okay. then whether or not it was still attached to the boat when they found it is up for debate. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, so anyways, he said from this point on, we have two options. They either went back to the Azores, which I mentioned earlier. They probably didn't because if Briggs was still on the ship, he was a well-known captain. Like, right. There's no reason why he wouldn't at least say, my name is you know, Captain right, right, Benjamin right. Briggs. This yeah. is my wife and children. Why would everyone start over secretive kind right. of thing like it doesn't make sense so likely they didn't go back and he calls them uh he basically calls them saying that they're dumb and that instead they just decided to chase the mary celeste until they died or got lost in the sea uh-huh okay yep so the mary celeste was floating by Away. itself and then these guys were chasing them in a dinghy i mean i could i guess i could see why that thought might cross their mind like think being like Okay, well, eventually the wind's going to die down. It'll it'll stop. Because, yep. like, I'm assuming when they found it, it was just kind of, like, floating. It wasn't, like, going. I actually had Yeah, it was, it, was just, it was just floating. Because, like, I mean, if the wind dies down, Maybe it's they not could really going to go anywhere. Yeah. Maybe they could catch it. So, like, I mean, theoretically, I could. And, like, if you're thinking, oh, our other option is to row however many days rowing back it would take, it's possible that they weighed the odds and decided their better chance was hoping the wind died down and they catch it. Yep. I I could see. I could see how that could be argued. Yep. So this guy also claims that in later research that he's done that he that there was a boat or two that was washed up on the shore of Portugal mm-hmm. where one of the people was wrapped in an American flag and no one else was. Okay. So he was assuming, oh, the one wrapped in an American flag is probably Captain Briggs. Mm. And there he claims that they found the decomposed body of a child as well, which would be the daughter. Why would they have taken an American flag with them on the the lifeboat? This guy's a conspiracy nut. Well, I know, but like, I'm just wondering yeah, if, how. That if they were would be so panicked that, that they didn't tie the right, rope yeah. right, why were they taking a flag? Why with would them? there have been an American flag with them? Right. Anyway. So another. So this this guy has this whole theory, and then he nearly completely abandons it and oh, says. No. No, it wasn't any of these things, even though this is the whole theory that I've just spent pages writing about. Uh, it was it was uh, sea quakes. Okay. Which, by the way, completely real thing. They're just earthquakes Underwater. that happen in the sea. Right. And they, you know, have been known to cause tsunamis and stuff right. like that. Or yeah. at least... Rough ha- water. Yeah, cause rough yeah, water. Yeah. yeah. It's just from tectonics plates shifting. It's well known, well documented. It's a thing. It's it a thing. This guy thinks that the U.S. Navy, since the 1800s, has been trying to hide the existence of sea quakes. Ah. So now he's going on this rant about how a sea quake actually probably damaged the Mary Celeste, and they thought that maybe that they were going under because they had to- so much cargo in the bottom that the captain wouldn't have been able to spot where the water line is or whatever, and instead of just risking staying on the ship that possibly got thrown apart by sea quakes that are totally a real thing that everyone knows about and is not being hidden by the Navy. Uh, Yeah. So the rest of his website, if you do perchance happen to look on it, is talking about how sea quakes cause mass strandings. Oh boy! Of whales, and that's that's his, that's why it's called Deaf Whale, because ah. he believes that the sea quakes are causing sonar pulses that the navy is trying to hide, and the sonar pulses are breaking the inner ear of whales and causing them to lose control and strand. Okay. Yep. Weird. All right. Anyways, back to the Mary Celeste. There was one other kind of reputable theory as to what could have happened to it. So we're leaving conspiracy corner. Yeah, this okay. <laughs> this guy does not believe that this next theory is uh, believable, though, which is funny because part of it he references in his own Oh, thing. boy. But anyways... Because I was, I was with this dude pretty much up until the whole body washing up on shore with the American flag. 
I was I was like on board with that potential theory of them trying to chase the ship. It honestly seems like one of the most plausible things. Yeah, that's what I I was. I was wondering why you were like this guy's nuts, and now I know. But like up until then, I was like. This makes sense. What are you talking well, who about? Who knows? Maybe maybe this guy got this one right and absolutely nothing else right. Because when <laughs> I was I was like, oh, who is this guy? Because this all seems pretty sound. And I was like trying to look up other stuff from him, and it was all anti-vax and aluminum oh is coursing through our blood veins Ugh. because of vaccines. And, and then Ugh. he had that whole rant about how uh, he doesn't believe in scientists because scientists don't believe in fifty-year veteran seafaring veterans. So the other theory that came up in a documentary about the Mary Celeste was that the previous trip from the Mary Celeste was uh, it was carrying coal, lots and lots of coal that okay. filled its whole cargo. And that one of the, uh, I think it was a bilge pump that was in the bottom because the bottom of your hull is essentially that you can get flooded up mm-hmm. to a certain point before you sink. And they have pumps on the bottom of oh, yeah. those to make sure that you're not sinking. Yeah, my, my dad's lobster boat has one. Okay, so his they, there was a theory that because it was carrying so much coal that the pump got clogged with soot. Okay. And that when the pump failed and they took it out, that it was, again, hard to tell how much water they may have taken on because of the filled, the filled, the yeah. filled pump. Because I guess there's a... Um, there's like a hatch down in the bottom of the cargo hold that you can take out to actually go into the yep. the bilge area, but they couldn't get to it it's because it was creepy down there. Yeah, Don't I, go. I, I bet. Don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Spiders galore. Yeah. <clears throat> so apparently, because of the 1700 casks of wine, they probably couldn't get under there, and instead of fair enough, instead of risking drowning everybody because they the seas have been ship. kind of choppy, that they yeah. abandoned. So that, okay. that's at least right. what a documentary came up with was was that. So I feel like the end consensus is that the everyone on board was probably like lost at sea. Oh yeah, because it seems that like most of the theories are they for some reason abandoned ship. Right. In I mean, a dinghy. You know the, so. the other thing is like they they could have uh, they could have gotten sick just in general like mm-hmm. the crew that's itself true. could have gotten sick and I don't know why nobody would be left but yeah yeah I. Personally, for me, I feel like the abandoning ship for some reason makes, makes the most sense, I think. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, the mystery of the Mary Celeste is, as far as I could tell, still not solved. Probably never will be. Probably uh, not at this point. There, A lot of the documents from when they uh, dropped it off in Gibraltar are, I think they, they were missing or like the captain's yeah. log that they had went missing in the early 1900s or something like that. Yeah, stuff gets lost in museum and archives, like, all the time, which is how occasionally people go, hey, wow, look, I discovered this, like, 300-year-old book or something, and it's like, all right, it was, like, wedged in the wrong section behind something else, and it's, hey, look at this. Yeah, it happens. And everyone will be happy to know that the Die Gratia did take the remaining casks of wine and did get them to Genoa, Italy, where they oh, were supposed God. to go. I was so worried about making sure those casks of wine made it to Italy. Yep. Those poor Genoans were going to be without their wine. Yep. And well, it would have been a travesty. They did lose nine barrels. Yeah, I feel like nine barrels in the grand scheme of things fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they salvaged the ship for about 1,700 pounds, which I thought was funny that it was essentially the ship was worth one pound per barrel of whiskey that it had. Uh, Why do I keep saying whiskey? Because you like whiskey better than wine. I know you do. Yep. It's fine. So I thought that was funny that the salvage of the ship was worth one dollar per (laughs) thing, but it doesn't, there's no real correlation there. You're just weird. Right. I just saw that. (laughs) Whatever. And yeah, because they they delivered all the the wine, so they got paid for that too. So good job, guys. Anyways, that's you didn't my... have to do any of the work, and they got all the money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they did some well, of the I work. I mean, some of the work, but yeah. Uh, they supposedly made enough money to recoup what it took them to bring the Mary Celeste oh, to okay. Gibraltar. Because I well, mean, they good. they had to go off course to do that. Right, so. right, right. Yeah. That that's added, good that. that had time and lost money and resources. Yeah. They had to have like half of it, it probably took a lot of time actually because yeah. they had to have like half of their ship go on oh, to the Mary yeah. Celeste yeah. To, to ferry it back. Jeez. Yeah. So they essentially had All two right. crews working. Gotta work overtime then, I guess, to All right. So yeah, that's the story of my ghost ship. 
Spooky. Yeah, okay. It's not Halloween anymore, sweetie. But I like the spooky. I know. <laughs> what um, time is it? Fun time? I don't know. Well, if it's fun time, we should stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> um, game time? No. Um, Call the action time. Ah, You were okay. so ready with it earlier, I thought you I were going to pick that up. I was very confused. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you guys can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. Yep. You can find us on Patreon at Halfwit Pod. You can send us an email at halfwitpod at gmail.com. Yes, please. And we would we we'd appreciate anything, just a hi or a comment that you have, corrections maybe. Yep. Not too harsh on those. Thank you. I was going to say, heck, at this point, you don't tell us you hate us. I don't care. <laughs> don't say that. That will matter at some point. Yes, it will. <laughs> don't do that, please. I was kidding. Uh, you can send us suggestions. Uh, I, I actually got a suggestion essentially today, accidentally, from Lewis, the friend oh, that we mentioned oh, oh, earlier. Oh, yep. uh, he w- was a little bit late for a December 2nd suggestion oh. of the, <laughs> the Japanese release of oh the PS1 game Legend of Dragoon. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. Which I freaking love and would definitely talk about. Yep. So the U.S. release of that was June 13th. Oh, so, so I know what you're doing the week of... The week before our wedding. Hang on, wait a second. No. <laughs> um, I can already tell you there's going to be a couple of weeks, I think, in that general area where we're probably not going to have episodes out. <laughs> I will talk for- about The Legend of Dragoon. I am forewarning everyone, unless we really get our act together and record, like, four episodes in one week, like, ahead of time. I'll just plop this mic down and do it myself. Okay, you can just rant about The Legend of Dragoon. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For a second, I thought I had the wrong name. <laughs> it's a great game. All right. Best RPG on PS1. I know some Final Fantasy fans would d- debate that. <laughs> I was gonna, I, I was gonna say I feel like that bar is not super high. It was PS1. Excuse me. <laughs> it was a four-disc PS1 game. Jeez. It was massive. All right. Anyway. Anyway, uh, thank you to the Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find him in our show notes. We have a link to his SoundCloud there. Go listen to his stuff. Yeah, it's pretty good. He makes stuff every once in a while. It's fun. Yeah. All right. uh, Fun facts? Absolutely. Since you were so excited about yours, you want to go first? Well, mine's in 771, so I think I get to go first. Alrighty then. December 5th of 771, Charlemagne becomes the sole king of the Franks after the death of his brother, Carloman. <laughs> it's like they had one kid and went, his name's Carloman. And they're like, wow, he didn't do so good. Let's name our next kid Charlemagne. <laughs> so ver- it's, it's just a, it's a cool version of Carloman. <laughs> Poor Carlo Man. <laughs> Carlo Man was the first born nerd guy. And oh, then, and his then more manly brother his, took over. His more manly brother, Charles Man. Oh boy, Charles the Char- Man. Charles Mang. Charles Mang? Mang. <laughs> What's up, Mang? Oh boy. Yeah, I'm sorry, I just found that super funny and it probably <laughs> wasn't all that funny. All right, well. As she moves on abruptly. <laughs> okay. I'm going to um, hop on your boat trip here. Ooh, boats. Yep. So also of December 5th, just this time, 1717. Wow, that's only one number off from, <laughs> from mine. Um, okay. So December 5th, 1717, the English pirate Blackbeard ransacks the merchant sloop Margaret and keeps her captain, Henry Bostock, prisoner for eight hours before releasing him. Bostock later provides the first record of Blackbeard's appearance and the source for his name. Ooh. Yeah, fun. Very cool. Fun, fun. What the heck is a sloop? It's a kind of ship. A sloop. A sloop. It's a sloop. A sloop? L-O-O-P. Sloop. Ah. It's it, it's, one, it's one of those, like, merchant ships. It's just a name for a, a kind of ship. Okay. It's like how when my mom worked at Bath Ironworks, a long time ago, they used to sell paraphernalia that had the phrase like frigate's not a bad word in bath maine or something like that oh because boy. there are ships that are frigates and mm-hmm. bath builds 
frigates. Yes. Or did f- build frigates. Now they build the destroyers. But, yep. <laughs> <sighs> well, anyways, that's been our show. And as always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your scoop historian. Oh, God. <laughs> Bye. I, <laughs> you forgot half of it. What did I forget? Well, now I'm going to say I hope you don't listen next week after that bad fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you were laughing, so I just did my next part, which is bye. I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. We hope you see you next week. Bye. Put my heart in that mystical face. Since you've gone and now.